Welcome to the Book Blast podcast and our international podcast series, Bridging the Divide, Translation and the Art of Empathy. We are showcasing a selection of the best writing in translation from around the world being published this year in the UK by 10 leading independent houses, along with a trailblazing publisher specialising in translation. Today, I'm interviewing Adam Freudenheim, publisher and managing director of Pushkin Press, which is dedicated to publishing novels, essays, memoirs and children's books. This interview is being recorded via Zoom at the beginning of the COVID-19 lockdown. Thank you, Adam, for agreeing to be interviewed. So tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you for having me, Georgia. I'm delighted to take part in this. It's a wonderful initiative. I grew up primarily on the east coast of the United States, but I've lived in the UK for half my life now for the last 23 years. I arrived here in 1997. My parents were great readers, and they are still great readers now in their 80s. They, it's only changed, I would say, the way in which they consume you know, the books, which is a lot more e-books and audiobooks than, 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 than when I was growing up. Yeah, their reading habits were very eclectic and, and very Catholic, I would say. Mostly fiction, though. Mostly classics, modern classics, and then a lot of you know, the big heavyweights of contemporary literature. My father was always reading the latest, um, Philip Roth or John Updike or... William Boyd or David Lodge, uh, mostly male writers it would be that he would have read um, when I was growing up. What about translations? Did you remember reading any of the great classics even in translation or contemporary oh, writing? I, I might. My father definitely read, uh, you know, had read lots of classics in translation as well himself. And I remember reading, certainly as a, you know, as a teenager, I read a lot of Russian classics I was particularly taken with. Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, as well as Thomas Mann and, and other major European writers of the 20th century. On my father's bookshelf, and I certainly discovered them there first, I would say. Was there a particular book that made you fall in love with reading, or rather was there an author who you were absolutely crazy about? <laughs> absolutely. I'm sure like any anyone who reads, that was the case with me. But I think in terms of, you know, I was in love with reading from as long as I can remember. I mean, I think my, my parents read to me from, again, before I can even remember, and I was reading. I can't remember a time where I wasn't reading every night, you know, before bed, as well as any other time that I could find, really. And uh, in that way, I do feel lucky to have grown up with uh, fewer distractions. My parents also didn't um, have cable television. Um, we never had that growing up. And we didn't even get a video recorder until I was 15 years old. So we had we had television, of course. But it did mean that there weren't that many things to do inside yeah. <laughs> other than read, really, which helps enormously, I have to say. And uh, in terms of particular writers, oh, I, I read so much. And I think when I was probably about 11 or 12, I remember really getting into Agatha Christie, probably 12. And I collected every single Agatha Christie. I don't actually think I read every single one of them, but I probably read 50 or more of them. They were hugely enjoyable. Um, and I found with all three of my children that they, they also enjoyed them a lot around that age. That's to 12, 13. So there's something about Agatha Christie that certainly works in that way. And then, and then when I was a teenager, as I was saying, you know, when I was a little older, I was, I was very into heavy philosophical Russian literature, European literature generally, I would say. Oh. Well, Christie, she is a good plotter, creating suspense. And when one is that age, 
How did you end up working in the publishing industry? Was it intentional? How did that? It was very intentional. It was very intentional, and I think it goes back to the luck that I had. That where I lived in Washington D.C. was right around the corner from Politics and Prose, which had just opened, which is one of the great independent bookstores in America now, generally regarded. But it had only just opened in the mid '80s, you know, early mid '80s. When we moved nearby. It was literally three blocks from my house,、uh, and this is relevant because I got my first job there, and I ended up working two and sometimes three nights a week in this bookstore from you know eight to ten p.m. when I was when I was fifteen or seventeen. I can't remember exactly that that sort of age, and so it definitely put me on the track. I think、uh, where I ended up, and how I directly got into publishing. I lived in Germany for a year after.、Um, In Berlin, after、uh, I graduated from university,、uh, mm-hmm. and then I went back to the U.S. and did this publishing course, which was then known as the Radcliffe Publishing Course, and took place at Harvard. And it's now become the Columbia Publishing Course in New York, and they even have a,、uh, a sort of branch at Oxford every year. But I did that course, which was magazine and book publishing. That led me to deciding that yes, book publishing was what I wanted to do. And I started the way a lot of people do with work experience, and then got a job as an assistant, and and so on. From America to Berlin to London, I mean, how did that your trajectory? So I I came here originally to here to the UK for postgraduate work, and、oh. I did a, a, a an MPhil in European literature, in German, French, and English literature, and then I stayed on. So that's、oh. how that happened.、Um, and the way I lived in Berlin because I had studied German literature、um, mm-hmm. as my major in college. In in the U.S. and I'd also lived there as an exchange student for a year in high school. Well, I lived in Germany for about two and a half years of my life, from the age、yeah. of you know fifteen to to twenty one. Penguin classics, then modern classics and reference, was from two thousand four to twelve. So describe how how long were you there and what what did you? I was I think as as so much in life I was in the right place at the right time. They had reorganized、uh, Penguin Classics a little bit, and in the beginning of 2004, they created a new role of Penguin Classics publisher. I was lucky enough to be hired for it. I was at Yale University Press in London at the time. I think that、uh, what the reason that that they were attracted to me is that I had that kind of academic publishing grounding,、mm-hmm. and I also had the languages. And、uh, at the same time, I You know, was was young. I was only twenty nine at the time I was appointed, and I think they wanted someone who was kind of going to bring a different perspective and and you know a, a kind of youthful energy. That was an amazing time. Penguin is an incredible company. Obviously, this is before the merger with Random House, so we、yes. happened after I left. Peter Mayer and Peter Carson. I mean, I remember them back in the when yes, early nineties. Was it their time? Peter Peter Carson Peter Mayer left in I think nineteen ninety six ninety seven so that is before my time and Peter Carson、uh, a little after that I actually had the luck to work with Peter Carson as a, a consultant、uh, to Penguin Classics when I was there and got to know him very well he was a, a wonderful man and a wonderful publisher very gifted Penguin had a very I think still has even with the merger but certainly when I was there it it, it didn't feel hugely corporate there was a real sense of Of loyalty to Penguin, the brand, and as a company, and I think、uh, I think that is still the case for a lot of people. 
most of my colleagues, you know, not all, but most of the colleagues I worked with are still at Penguin even eight years later. You know, so that gives you an idea. Many of them had been there before I joined. So, you know, it was a fantastic place. And I couldn't be doing what I'm doing now without the eight years I spent as yeah. a publisher of, of mm -hmm. Penguin Classics. Mm -hmm. And were there particular authors you worked on when you were there? Oh, well, I, was, I had oversight over the whole list. Well, I had people working with me, obviously, but I, you know, I worked on the estates of Steinbeck and Waugh and Arthur Miller and Nabokov and Kerouac and, you know, had to, had to commission new introductions, new translations yeah. of Dostoevsky, of Tolstoy, of Aristotle, of Plato, mm -hmm. of you name it. Uh, it was a really extraordinary uh, place to be and list to be involved with. And I think I kind of, uh, the thing that kind of was most exciting for me, perhaps, as a, a discovery and a publisher was that I, I, I published the first English language edition of Hans Fallada's novel, Alone in Berlin. It sold, it sold about a quarter of a million copies for Penguin the year, the year it came out in paperback. And I think it has now sold about half a million copies in total for Penguin. Wow. So... Publishing classics, so that requires a special acuity, a special, I don't even say a nose for what will work, but, but what actually makes a classic? I mean, this is a good question. I think it's constantly evolving. And I think in a nutshell, I always said when I was a penguin, I still feel it's the case. It's a book that has stood the test of time. And then in a way, you know, what a period of time is changes often. And I could see that change while I was at Penguin and even more so since. I mean, there's certain books that I proposed while I was at Penguin that people said, oh, that can't be a modern classic. You know, that's much too recent. And then I've noticed that subsequently they've published, <laughs> you know, these books in the last few years. I mean, because I left eight years ago. So I think people's definitions are constantly shifting and the, the sense of time is constantly shifting too. There are quite a lot of books now from the 80s and 90s in the Penguin Modern Classics list uh, in a way that there weren't, you know, five or ten years ago. And, uh, you know, the, but the classics obviously encompasses, the Penguin Classics en encompasses in a way everything from the Epic of Gilgamesh <laughs> until, yeah. you know, books from, from 10 or 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. So there are over 2,000 individual titles on that list, and it's constantly growing and... Uh, I think the more interesting thing is is how you publish them and how you go about doing that, and that's where the kind of creativity uh, uh, of being a publisher um, comes in. So Pushkin Press focuses on modern classics rather than ancient or say nineteenth yeah. century, um, and it's mostly mostly translated. So you do some things that aren't translations, but a large percentage is. Translation. I'm right in saying that. Oh yes, about about three quarters about three quarters of what Pushkin publishes across all our imprints is translation, whether yeah. that's children's or crime or um, classics uh, or contemporary, and the classics list is overwhelmingly translation, probably yeah. eighty-five or ninety percent. And uh, you're absolutely right to say that it's 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 mainly uh, modern classics. It's, it's sort of from the nineteen. I sort of our key period, I would say, is the 1920s to the 1940s, 20s, yeah. 30s, 40s. And, uh, but we publish outside of that, too. And, you know, we have some 19th century work. And, and, and we also have some books from the, you know, 50s and 60s that are on the classics list. 
So how did you discover your most successful, no longer forgotten comeback author, Stefan Zweig? Because, of course, he was in his time huge and then disappeared down a black hole. And then you brought him to life again, so to speak. So how did all that happen? I'd read, I'd, I'd read Zweig my, myself um, as, a, as a teenager, in fact. Um, I read The World of Yesterday and you know, his, his autobiography and, um, and other stories of his chess you know story um, which I'd also read you know uh, when I was younger I can't take credit actually for Zweig's publication by Pushkin in the first instance because I took over the press in 2012 and it was founded uh, um, 15 years before that and Zweig was one of the very first authors that was published by Pushkin Press mm -hmm. but what I can say is that um, it was one of the things that attracted me to it and we have continued to grow and develop that Zweig List. Every year, I think, as long as I've been there, we publish something new in translation by Zweig, as well as repackaging things and trying to represent them in different ways. Um, we have over 30 titles in print by Zweig on the list. All the same translator or different translators? How do you go about? Um, so it's a mix. I mean, Anthea Bell, the late, the late great Anthea Bell, who died, sadly died. Many of the translations are by Anthea Bell. But she obviously was very busy, um, and she's also been dead the last couple of years, sadly. So Will Stone, the poet, has translated quite a lot of Zweig for us as well. And uh, he's, we've done very well with both of their translations. And there are a few that we've used older, a few books where we've used older translations from the 1930s and 40s. But the overwhelming majority are new translations by Anthea Bell and Will Stone. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the Pushkin collection. So going back to also some of the classics of the 19th century, because you have Tolstoy and Gogol, and then very interesting, you have lesser-known authors like Teffy, and also they are very beautifully production values, to use a rather industry expression. They're beautiful books, so they it's quite continental, that actually, the series. You kind of want to collect them all. That's clever, because you, you really do want to collect them all. They're lovely, obviously extraordinary, wonderful writing. Tell us a bit about some of the other writers, the Pushkin collection, how that is evolving. Yeah, so the, the Pushkin collection is what we call that, as you say, that little that series of small, physically small books that Pushkin has been known for since it started. So the mm. first books that appeared in 1998 were in this format, which was pretty shamelessly ripped off by, from Solerio, the Italian publisher. <laughs> the exact same format. We we really like the format, and we've kept the same. We use the same printer, and we use the same um, text paper and typeface and everything. But what we what we did update is the the cover design slightly. So we've had the last eight years a much more modern cover design, and we commission original illustrations for almost every Pushkin collection title. We've also expanded the collection because one of the oddities about Pushkin Press when I took over is that despite the name, it didn't publish any Russian literature, <laughs> and which is completely name, absurd. And one, yes, so one of the first things I did actually, I commissioned was a little collection of st uh, stories and poems by by Pushkin himself. The Queen of Spades. Is, is it, that's yes. the famous. That's the famous story. The Queen of Spades, exactly. So we, we published the Queen of Spades um, uh, with the station master's daughter and 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 some a selection of poetry. We've also published Pushkin's Yevgeny Onegin, and we're also I'm very proud. We've actually really expanded the the Russian classics publishing within the collection. So one of our early 
sort of breakthrough successes was a writer called Gaito Gazdanov, mainly for the 1940s, 50s, uh, uh, and early 60s. We are about to actually publish, I think, the fifth or sixth book of his, but the first one we did was called The Spectre of Alexander Wolfe, which we published in 2013, I believe it was. And that was a complete rediscovery. He was entirely out of print in English. So that was uh, that was nice. And we also added Tefi, um, a wonderful um, uh, Russian writer, died in the early 1950s, but mainly most of her work is from the, the 20s. Anyway, she'd never been published in English before at all in any, except in, you know, an anthology. So we published, we've now published, I think, three books by her, and we have a fourth one coming late next year. So, yeah, we've really tried to expand the Russian uh, component, and we've also done new translations and new selections of stories by, by Tolstoy and by Gogol, and we have a new collection coming up by Turgenev. We're about to publish a new collection of stories by Joseph Roth, and we and the Japanese writer um, Aptogawa. We also have a collection of his coming up later in the year. Tell us about one. Now you start with one, and you've also started some children book. A bit about that. Yes. Well, one is our English language imprint. Effectively, it's the home for our uh, all the books that we published that were originally written in English. Yeah. Are published in the one imprint, and. That is mainly literary fiction and some memoir and narrative nonfiction. It's a small list of a handful of books each year. The The children's list, which I, I started almost immediately upon coming to Pushkin and which launched in spring of 2013, mainly focused on translations to begin with and classics. We've had a lot of success there, most most notably probably to, to listeners um, with the letter for the king by Tonka Draft which in the last week has actually been released as a Netflix six-part series, and that never would have come about without our publishing it in English for the first time. It's a Dutch classic from the 1960s, and a wonderful, really wonderful children's book, which is our best-selling children's book and continues to, to, to sell very well around the world. We've also published books translated uh, on the children's list from Japanese, from Icelandic, um, from German, from French, from Italian, from Spanish, lots of different languages. And some of them are contemporary as well, though the contemporary list is is, is more English language, um, not exclusively. Uh, Tom Rosenthal said of the late, great Sonny Mehta that he was able to handle the crudest commerce and the finest literature with equal skill. This paradoxical challenge is faced by all publishers. So how do you manage to balance <laughs> crude commerce and literary finesse? I, it's a very good question. Um, I think, look, I think the reality is that you 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 obviously need to sell books because, and, and I think that one of the things that I've, I've always cared about is trying to reach, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not good enough to just print the book, you have to publish it. And what that means is obviously getting people to buy it and to read it. Um, and that's always excited me. Um, the the way that you spread spread the spread the word about your books. So I I don't think there's any everyone has to balance it as 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 um, Sunny observed. But you you're trying to publish books that you believe in in one thing or one way or another. And I think what Sunny always felt was as I understood it was that even if he was publishing something that was a you know he thought was going to be a rip roaring bestseller, he thought it was the best in class for that particular genre or that kind of book and. I suppose the way I approach it, we don't 
you know, we don't have a particularly commercial list, and that's quite deliberate. We have a small list that's um, the literary side, but we make sure that every book we publish, we're publishing very deliberately, and that there is someone with a passion for the book and uh, publishing vision, you know, that the editor who acquires the book really loves it and is passionate about it and wants to find readers for it because that's ultimately what makes it um, exciting and fun for us as publishers. It's not just printing it, it's publishing. Which brings us to Mazel Tov, Margot, Margot van der Straten's unusual autobiographical novel about life in Antwerp's modern Orthodox Jewish community. It is, reading is like a window opening onto another world. It is an extraordinary and truly unique, different, unusual book. How did you spot it and get it translated? I'm very proud of publishing this book, which I, I, I really I love personally, and I've been very gratified by the response it's had and how it's been received in English. I think the way I acquired it is pretty typical of the way that Pushkin goes about things. We are in touch with any number of international publishers, agents, rights people, translators, and we're talking to them all the time about books that they're excited about. In this particular case, it was actually the um, Dutch publisher, um, and it was a rights person there that I'd known for a while and had bought other books from, and so they, they really thought I'd be interested in it, and I was, and they had produced a very short sample, which I liked, but that's obviously not enough to buy a book, and so I had the book read by a couple different people. But in addition, the book had also sold incredibly well in Belgium. It was being translated into German, Polish, French, um, possibly more languages, but several other languages. So I could talk to the other editors who'd acquired it in those houses. And yeah, that, that's effectively how I went about it and was only published at the end of January, uh, early February 2020. So it hasn't been out for very long now, but um, it's had a nice response so far. Yeah. So what kind of person do you think makes a very good translator? Because it's great that translation is far more from, I think, when certainly from when I started in publishing, though there were people like John Calder and Marion Boyars, but it was less, there's much more translation, there's much more going on. All the same, to be a very good translator, you talk about Anthea Bell, and I can think of a couple of other great translators I have been lucky enough to know in the past, that is special. So what what would you say, what kind of person, what, what makes a very special, good translator? I think my view of this has changed a lot over the years, um, and the whole... What makes a good translator? Um, I, I've changed my view on this over the years, I think, and I, I definitely don't think there's one answer. And, and you know, when I first started working with translators at Penguin Classics, they were almost entirely, not entirely, but they were almost entirely academics or retired academics. They were doing it on the side, or they were, in some cases, they were writers who happened to know another language, and, you know, they were doing it you know, because they were passionate about that language or that work. It's become a much more professional field over the last 10, 15 years. There's a lot more being translated into English by many publishers, large and small. And there are courses, of course, where people can study translation. And there are mentorship programs and all these sorts of things. So I think, you know, that definitely has had an effect. But I, I don't think there's one thing, as I say, that makes a good translator I work with translators who are poets themselves, um, or fiction writers in some cases. I work with some who only do translation work. I recently published a, a biography of Rembrandt um, by Ono Blom called Young Rembrandt, uh, and the translator of that works in 
you know, the, the Dutch foreign ministry and does a lot of uh, translation of that kind. But she's also a specialist in art, uh, you know, in art history. So she's done a lot of museum catalogs and um, things of that kind. And she really knows her art history, but she's an extremely good translator. So I think, you know, different work requires a different, different kinds of translators. And, and they're all out there. I, I mean, they're an incredible group of people. In this country, why, in your view, in the UK, is there still such reticence on the part of the dominant literary establishment um, and booksellers to publish, review, promote literature in translation, despite the success of leading translation in publishers like, I mentioned, Matlehose Press, Fitzcarraldo, yourselves, of course, many others, and smaller specialised presses? There is, and the context, recent context doesn't help but why is there such a reticence i, I actually what don't think I, I disagree with the premise I, I think it would you, you know you it would have been a fair thing to say 10 years ago and certainly when i moved from right. penguin to pushkin part of the reason i decided to do what i'm doing at pushkin was to push contemporary literature and translation i think there's been a complete change a sea change in the industry because there have been lots of successes uh right. you know whether it's steve larson on the commercial side or um, obviously, Elena Ferrante, um, there are many other examples. And I think that there's less and less of a, of a reticence um, about it. The reason I think that, um, you know, the bigger, um, on the whole, the bigger uh, publishing houses aren't publishing as much in translation is, you know, it's not their focus, though increasingly they are doing more of it. And there is a lot of great English language writing from all over the world. And I think people sometimes forget this, that, you know, the English language writing community, when you take into account the traditions of uh, Britain and Ireland and the US and Canada and Australia and India and South Africa, and you know, it's, it's a huge, huge group of people writing in English from very different, diverse viewpoints. So yeah. I think that um, I don't think it's really just a sort of parochialism, which sometimes um, talked about as. Uh, so I, but I feel pretty optimistic. There's a huge amount of passion for books from other countries in um, in the in the trade as well. You know, from booksellers, from Waterstones, from Daunt, you know, and other independent bookshops. So I, I feel really optimistic about it. I mean, if anything, I think it's still reviewers. I always find it amusing in some of the papers they still you know as a category as a genre they have translated fiction a roundup or you know it, it, whereas it's not a category it doesn't you know from my point of view it's a, a completely misleading way of talking about it it's not how we talk about it at Pushkin it's not how I think readers engage with books either you know, you, you want to read a, a great thriller and do you care whether it was translated or not no or you want to read whatever kind of book it is, you know, and the, and the styles are so varied that it's a complete, uh, I think it's completely wrong to think of translated fiction as a category. It really isn't, um, you know, and I don't acquire books in that way or publish them in that way. And that actually echoes, I was discussing that, the, the, the press coverage with a writer the other day who reviews a lot, and she, I said, oh, the reviewers tend to not uh, review translated fiction as much and, and what you were just saying and she pulled me up short saying oh no no it's the it's the, the books editors it's the literary commissioning editors on the press and the magazines who don't uh cover translation the guardian are fantastic but other, the other broadsheets are not so good so that i will just leave that out there they're missing they're missing a beat there yeah. well i think that they are improving i think the um 
you know, the, the Financial Times is doing a lot more, and even the Sunday Times, you know, has in- introduced this roundup, which I think is monthly, of, you know, foreign fiction. Yeah. I, I think it's the wrong way to go about it. Personally, I wish that I they would just, you know, should be considered on their own merits, but still, it's a good thing that they're being covered more and more, and I think this is less and less of an issue, and I imagine it will disappear completely in another, you know, five to ten years at the, at the longest. So looking into your crystal ball, in the wake of Brexit and now the coronavirus pandemic, what does the future hold for so-called traditional publishing, in your view? I have no crystal ball, and I, but, but I'm very optimistic. <laughs> I've been doing what I've been doing over 20 years, and fundamentally it hasn't really changed. We have to be creative and ever more creative and innovative about the way that we reach readers. But uh, that that was ever the of us, I think. And I don't really, I, don't, I feel pretty optimistic about the future of the book. And I think when the when ebooks first came out and the Kindle was first released, there was a lot of fear among publishers. Perhaps even you know more when the iPad was released. I think that's completely changed, and it's now just another format in which books are published, you know, e. and it's very clear that the two don't compete with each other so much as coexist very nicely, and most people, well, everyone I know, and I think, uh, you know, people who read e-books also read print books, and even if that's not always the other, the case the other way around, 90% of Pushkin sales are still print, and as an industry, it's probably 75 to 80% print sales. So I don't think the kind of traditional print book is, is going anywhere. But yeah, we have to keep adapting. So who would be in your dream book club? That's a good question. It's, uh, I think just other, any, you know, to be honest, it's, it's about other passionate readers, people who care about, read carefully and, and want to talk about what they read. Um, I actually am in a book club myself, um, which is probably quite unusual for a publisher, but I've been doing that for about 15 years every other month with a a group of friends, none of whom is in the industry, none of whom works, you know, none of them are in this business Um, and that, but they're all very keen readers and we have very good, interesting conversations. So they're, they're my dream book club already in a way, because we've had some wonderful conversations about books over the 15 years that I've been doing it. You can't be in this business without being optimistic. Also, given the the failure rate <laughs> of most yeah. books, you have to remain optimistic. <laughs> uh, even when you you know a book probably isn't going to work, but you love it and you 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 buy it even against your 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 better judgment. But um, once in a while, those turn out to be the best decisions you've made. So, are you a gambler in that case? Absolutely, I think all publishers are gamblers. You, you're gambling on every book and. The other way to look at it is every book, especially by an unpublished author, a new author, is like a startup business. And that gives you a sense of how challenging it is to be a publisher. And also the, the success and failure rate, which exists among uh, startups, is, is, is similarly echoed in the, the publishing world. And do you have a motto? You're taking a lot of knocks along the way when you're in publishing. Things don't sell the way you'd like, or a book gets incredible coverage and yet no one's buying it whatever it might be. So I just kind of think, all right, on we go, onwards and upwards. And we have to move on and, and, and look forward to the next thing. Thank you, Adam. Thank you very much.
find out more about Pushkin Press and their books, visit website www.pushkinpress.com. Their Twitter feed is at Pushkin Press. This podcast is brought to you by Bookblast. For more bookishness between episodes, visit online journal, The Bookblast Diary, or find us on Twitter at Bookblast. Special thanks to sound editor Rupert Such, theme tune composer Edward Campbell, and to publisher Adam Freudenheim for taking the time to be interviewed. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Book Blast podcast. <laughs>